For those to be taken up, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 46. I decided that uh, since I was not here last week, and then next week we have another little break with Joe and Lindsay Reisinger being here, I'm not going to uh, jump back into the study of Ephesians. We have one section left in Ephesians, the last uh, part there, and I want to treat them all together if we can. So I decided to uh, uh, give a little attention this morning to something that's been, been just sort of brewing in my own, my own heart. Uh, much of the feedback we got, we went through a couple of months ago and had a Sunday school quarter designated dedicated to the, this topic of making disciples, that we have to be disciples, we are to make disciples, and we are to teach them to obey. And uh, for us as a leadership team, for me as your pastor, it has uh, been the thing that's been being pressed in us on, on where are we going to go with that? What's that going to mean? What's that going it, to, it, it's got to mean more than just some kind of discussion around a Sunday school uh, classroom about what it means to make disciples. And, and for me, I don't know where you're at in this, and I'd love to have more conversation with you about it, but for me, it, it, it's continued to sort of rest in, in me that uh, uh, it's that first part we really have to pay attention to. We have to be disciples. I'm fully convinced that uh, according to the promise of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit in us that when we are disciples, we don't have to manufacture making disciples. We don't have to talk about making disciples. Now, we can talk about how to do that. We can encourage each other. We can give each other practices and, and then go out together and support each other. And, and there's room for those kind of discussions that, to be had, for sure. But when we are disciples of Jesus... When his spirit is in us, then that's just what happens. Jesus' name is on our lips. His light shines through us, and people give glory to the Father in heaven for our good deeds that are being done. So that's really kind of where, and, and teaching them to obey is much the same way, right? Because it, it would be, uh, let me just frame it this way. If I, as your pastor, stand up here week after week and exhort you to obey Scripture and to uh, try to compel you to walk faithfully to Jesus, but I am not a disciple myself, well, you can figure out how well that's going to work, right? How well is that going to work? That wasn't very loud. How well is that going to work? It's not going to work. Now, I don't say that to say that uh, uh, if church is going well, then that means it must be a reflection of me um, and me being a disciple. I'm just telling you the opposite won't be true. I cannot exhort you. We cannot exhort each other. We cannot aim to walk with each other and help each other be faithful to Scripture if we're not disciples ourselves. It's never going to happen. So that stream brought together with a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the feedback that we got was along the lines of prayer, that we need to grow in prayer. And that matches with what uh, I feel uh, I sense in my, my, my own, myself. I'm not talking with, with you, I'm with myself. You need to grow in prayer. So today I'd like to just kind of bring those things together. And there... I, I don't know what all is going to happen today because I, I was sitting in my desk this week and just, well, I was rejoicing and I was weeping and I was, I was uh, wondering what all, where this should go and I was not sure exactly where all this should go. And so we're going to end up here this morning. We're going to read Psalm 46 together. We're going to read it in chunks. And in between, I'm going to fill in with some stories because the, the point I want to bring you today is that uh, the battle that we are facing for us being a disciple... The battle that we are facing for bringing other people into the kingdom of Jesus, of making disciples, and the battle that we are facing in helping them or teaching them to obey all that Jesus has taught us, that all those, every one of those spots, the battle belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our battle. I mean, it is our battle. We're part of it. But it's to him that the victory belongs, and I'm hoping today through some stories and through some scripture to help you see how true that is. There is going to be far, 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 far more 
about or in this message that we can cover in the time we have today. I don't know if more stuff is going to come out in future messages. I don't know if it's going to come out in small groups. I don't know if it's going to come out in conversations, informally or formally. I don't know. One comment I want to make before I get, get launched here, because uh, otherwise I'm sure I'm going to forget it. Often on the back side of your bulletin, I put a handout to help you follow along, take notes, whatever, do it, whatever. If you turn your bulletin over today, you see that there's just a QR code, I, mostly because it couldn't fit. I put it together, it's not, a, it's not a handout per se, but it's a, it's a list of, well, this is what it looks like. It's a list of stories to consider when we talk about the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord and verses to consider, which is not even, not even close. I mean, my list of verses is like, miles long. It's not miles. That's an exaggeration. It's, it's really long. It takes up like an entire notebook page. And I, I pared it down to just like a little bit that I thought might be helpful. If you want that, you can scan the QR code if you know what you're doing there, or you can visit our website. I think Caleb said he put it in a little red bar along the top that's going to be there for a little bit. And you can uh, look at it or print it out at home. It's really, what I really intended was for, for you to have at home going forward. I want your help this morning. Psalm 46, you're there. I'm going to, I didn't bring the clicker up here. Can I have, can, can I have a clicker? And then can you, uh, maybe Caleb, you run it up here. Stephanie, would you go to the first slide there? Psalm 46, I'm, we're gonna read the first three verses. And, oh, you're going this way. And uh, uh, I would like your help in reading these verses. So I put the, the whole thing up here so you can just read them. That way, uh, if we're not reading the same translation, we'll read together. So would you read these with me? There's two slides. Read them together with me if you would. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved and the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Now, if you're reading these ancient texts, these psalms, the word selah is a term. It's actually a musical term, but it means to rest or to pause. It means that what you've just read, you should take some time to contemplate. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, a very present help in trouble. And then notice what he says, though we will, uh, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. And he lists all these those. Now the earth is pretty immovable for the most part. Though the earth would give way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters be roaring and foaming and the mountains trembling at the waters swelling and the earth being moved, though all that would happen, we will not fear. How is this possible, church? How is it possible that if those things would happen, we would not fear? So let me take you back in time from before then these words were written. And the story comes from First Chronicles um, Sorry, the story comes from Second Chronicles. It's a, probably a story you're familiar with, but I want to just fill you in a, a time. Roughly 852 B.C., in that time frame, there's a man named Jehoshaphat, and he's the king of a nation called Judah. And this nation has clawed its way into existence by the mighty works of God, and they have walked a very treacherous journey of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, and they've seen lots of, of the uh, rewards and the uh, opposite of rewards, the, the, the curses of their, of their wavering faith. And their allies or their uh, fellow brothers and sisters to the north have suffered tremendously. And now Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, finds himself in a place where uh, things aren't looking too good because he receives word that there's an army, a massive army, a, a countless army. 
an army far bigger than their army coming towards them intent to wipe them out. And what he doesn't understand is that these people come from a place that when they were themselves were on the move, even before his time, they were on the move onto the way to this land that they call the promised land where they're now settled, that God specifically told them to not wipe them out like he told them all the other, they should do with all the other nations. And now it's these very people that are marching against him and he's not sure how this is gonna work for the odds don't look too good. There's, there's, a, there's a daunting army. There's a massive army. Jesus said, by the way, that any man who wants to come after him should count the cost. And one of the examples he gives of that is that if a king sees an army approaching and recognizes that that army is far bigger than his army, is that he should send a delegate and ask for peace, a delegation and ask for peace, so that he does, avoids getting uh, squashed and slaughtered and taken, taken off the map. And Jehoshaphat finds himself in that setting. But Jehoshaphat stands in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, it says in 2 Chronicles, and he begins to cry out to God. He says, O oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand is power and might. He goes on and gives a little history lesson of how they got there and how can it be that this army marching toward them are the ones that God said, leave them alone. Don't destroy them. And then God, if that's true, how could it work like that? You see, he's facing some disillusionment and some disappointment and some confusion, right? God, you said don't touch them, and now they turn, and now they're marching, and now it looks like there's no way out. God, we are powerless. This is what he says. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. Church, listen. These are great stories. But if we don't get to the end of today and say these stories have something to do with us, then we may as well not waste our time. We are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then this man called Jehaziel, he steps up in front of them and he says this. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you. And this is what he says. Do not be afraid. <laughs> do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And if you don't know this story already... Friends, if you don't know this story, this story is one of the most astounding, inexplicable, unbelievable stories that exist in Scripture. And they're all over in the Bible, so there's lots of those. But somehow on that day, when they heard this word, when that man of God, filled with the Spirit of God, stood in front of them and said, God has heard your prayer, and you should not be afraid or be dismayed at this great horde marching against you, which you're right, you don't stand a chance, but you should not be afraid or dismayed because the battle is not yours, it's God's battle. And they somehow, the next morning, got up and marched out to where the fight was supposed to happen, and of all the most ridiculous, ludicrous battle strategies in the history of mankind, they put the worship leaders in front. They put the singers in front, and they began to sing as they marched toward the enemy, and they sang, give thanks to the Lord, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. And they praised and they praised. And then unbelievably it says, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. And they were routed. The men that were, they, they were marching to fight against were routed. They came up and they found out all these people destroying each other. Can, let me ask the question this way first before I ask the question I was going to. Can they, in that day, in 852 BC or thereabouts somewhere, can they trust that the battle belongs to the Lord? Are they able to take God at his word and say, God, if you said don't be afraid or be dis- not be dismayed for the battle belongs to me, can they trust him? Are they able to trust him? What do you think? You just saw the story, right? If, unless you don't believe the Bible. You just saw, heard the story. Can we believe the same about God? Psalm 46, verses 4 to 7. Read with me again. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Selah. Pause and rest once again to hear that the Lord of hosts He is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Fast forward through time. And now you're looking at a, around 33 AD, a group of plain ordinary men who somehow have gotten caught up with this man called Jesus of Nazareth and have followed him. And though they face disappointments, though they face surprises, though they face the greatest thing of all when their master that they were following and had placed all their hope in went to the grave and died, They faced all those things. They saw him rise triumphant back again. And in that moment when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they became convinced that this man was exactly who God said he was going to be. That he was the Messiah come to save the world. And as they began to walk in that truth, the day came when the Holy Spirit of God fell on them in such a powerful way and they began to proclaim. And their proclaiming began to get them in trouble. And as they moved about among the people, they began to act a little bit like this Jesus that they'd been following. And that began to get them in trouble. In fact, they began to get in trouble with the highest order of their own religion that they were part of because they didn't like what they were doing. And so on the heels of some incredible things happening and powerfully proclaiming who Jesus was, they were called to account. And they were warned. And they were told, you stop preaching in the name of Jesus or else. That was the indication. Or else. This is from Acts chapter 4 where I'm now at. You see, it might have been pretty easy in that scenario for them to suddenly say, well, you know, maybe we could back off just a little bit, take the heat off just a bit. Maybe if we, maybe if we take, the, take the, the quiet route and sort of the back seat for a little bit, maybe it'll kind of blow over and then we can press forward. We're not abandoning the mission. We're just going to change how it is a little bit. Or maybe they're just going to say, well, maybe we'll go somewhere else because maybe they'll be more willing to hear us there. Or maybe they were going to question about whether it's really worth it or not. When the opposition came, when the authorities begin to threaten and say, you better stop. 
Let me ask you, do you think they knew the story of Jehoshaphat? Did they know what happened to Jehoshaphat's day? Let me ask you, could they trust that the battle belonged to God and not to them? You see, we see those men, thank you. We see those men, and what did they do when they left that place after being threatened? Here's what they said. They began to pray, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and listen to what he said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they began to give a little history lesson about how exactly that happened right in front of their eyes, that the kings of the, and the rulers of the land arrayed themselves against Jesus. But they knew what David said, that God said, why? Why do they do that? What good is it going to do? This battle belongs to me, God said. And this is then what they prayed. Look at the astounding prayer. They said, Lord, would you look upon their threats? Pay attention to what they're doing. You take care of it. That's the translation for me this morning says, the battle belongs to you, God. That's your deal. But for us, would you grant to us, your servants, that we would continue to speak your word with all boldness. Were they able to trust in the Lord that the battle belonged to him? Look what it says. Just like men fighting each other, totally different context. We're no longer in a battlefield. We're in a room. But the room was shaken. The Holy Spirit fell and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And I'll tell you, they turned the world upside down. They brought Jesus to all kinds of people in all kinds of settings and something that spread not just there in Jerusalem, but across the known world at that time. They began a commission that you heard about this morning. They began a commission that you and I are still part of today. You see, these are not just independent stories. These are threads of history that we are on. Like, we're in this thread, friends. This is why all the things I'm going to say about them apply to us. The battle is not yours, it's God's, God said. And they took him at his word, right? They said, okay, you pay attention to the threats. You take care of that. But for us, give us strength and boldness so that we might continue to do what we're supposed to do. We might continue to proclaim your word with all boldness. I ask you, church, today, does the battle still belong to God or not? Psalm 46, verses 8 through 11. Read with me again. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You know where this is headed. Because the question is going to be, is the God of Jacob your fortress? Is he my fortress? Are, am I willing to be still and know that he is God? To wait, to quiet myself, to know that he said the battle belongs to him. It's not mine to take up. It's not mine to change that mind. 
or to take care of this problem. Now, again, we, we participate in what God is doing. He uses us. But that's not the message we need to hear. We need to rest and pause in the fact that we are to be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted in all the earth. His name will gain renown among all nations. It is going to happen. It is happening already. Let's fast forward a few more years. We're going to go to 1854. We're going to focus our attention on a ship that's in the South Pacific Sea off the coast of what today is New Guinea. And they're in the middle of a completely calm sea. And there's a young man on this ship who is observing the captain of the ship who's growing more and more frantic and more and more uh, disturbed about what's going on. And so the young man finally works up the, uh, or, or walks into, into the situation and says, can I ask what you're concerned about? And the captain says, yes, we're on a completely calm sea. There's no wind at all, which means we are, we are, uh, we are following the whim of the current of the ocean that we're in, and it's taken us over to that group of reefs right there where we're going we're gonna to wreck, and the island that's right there is uh, full of cannibals. And indeed, when the young man looked at that island, he saw men on the shore preparing fires already, full of joy because of the, uh, what was about to unfold before them. And as despair increased, the captain finally said, we've done all we can. And this young man says, I don't think we have. You see, there are four of us on board the ship today who are Christians and we believe in God. Maybe we should go below deck and pray that God would send us a wind. And so these four young men went below deck and they began to pray. And not very long afterwards, this young man came back up on top deck. And now the first mate was up there wringing his hands. And he looked at the first mate and he says, you go unfurl that sail and let it down. And he said, why? There's no wind. And he said, there's going to be a wind coming. I prayed. And the first mate made it clear that he didn't believe in God. And this man said, nevertheless, there's a wind coming because I prayed and asked God and it's coming. And then there was a little flutter and he said, quick. And he said, oh, it's just a, it's a, it's a, just a mirage. I think it's a, there's a phrase, a sailing phrase, that's a cat's claw. And the man said, no, go drop the sail, the wind is coming. And so he did. The first mate dropped the sail and wouldn't you know it, as he did that, the, the wind came and the course of the ship changed. And they sailed away, much to the disappointment of the, those living on the island. And it allowed this man, this young man, who later in life would reflect about that day to say these words. Thus God encouraged me ere landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer. And to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help which each emergency required. The young man was Hudson Taylor on his way to China to establish what we know today as China Inland Mission. But how did Hudson get to have a faith like that? What made him think that this battle is God's, not mine? That the way to solve my problem is to go below deck and ask God to bring a wind. Not to get out the oar and start rowing or not to start bailing ship or not to do whatever else other plans might have been laid. You see, Hudson grew up in a, in, a, in a Christian home, actually. But when he became a young man, he actually walked away from the Lord. He began to do kind of what he wanted to. And he began to be convinced that there was nothing that could bring him, that, that could for, bring him forgiveness because he was walking away from God. 
And so he, began, he decided, this is his own words, he decided that if he wasn't going to get to be saved and wasn't going to enjoy afterlife, he was going to enjoy this life as much as he could. And so he did. And one day he was looking for some reading material and he went to his father's library and he picked up a pamphlet and he said, I know these things. There's a story in the front and there's a sermon in the back. I'm going to read the front, the story, for my reading enjoyment. I'm going to skip the back because I don't want to know that. And he slipped away into a little warehouse and began to read. Unbeknownst to him, his mom was about 20, 30 miles away and on some journey. And she, who had been praying faithfully for her son Hudson all those years for him to come to salvation, felt a special unction that day and said, I'm going to go into my room and I'm not going to come out until I get a peace from the Lord that my, husband, my, my son Hudson will be saved. And she did. And she locked herself in that room and she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. Until the moment came where she felt a peace inside of her and she said, it's been taken care of. Go back the 20 or 30 miles to where Hudson is in this warehouse who somehow imperceptibly traveled past that story and began to read the, the, the sermon part of the back end. And he came to this part that talked about the finished work of Christ. And he began to ask himself, if it's a finished work, what was finished? And he began to realize it was salvation was finished. And if it was finished, there's no more self sacrifice that could be made. And he began to realize that he himself was part of that. And he gave his heart to the Lord that day. And he walked out and he kept it to himself for a couple of days. Then finally, a couple of days later, he told his sister Maria, but he said, don't tell anyone. And two weeks later, his mom comes home from where she was at. And he walks right out to her and he says, mom, I got something I got to tell you. And he says, even, when he wrote this, he said, even now I can still feel, I didn't get another word out, I can still feel my mom walking up and wrapping me in a big bear hug and saying, I know, son, I know the Lord has saved you. And he said, what, did my sister tell you? And she, then he found out the other side of the story. I can tell you stories all day long about battlefields long ago. And we can hear them and we can learn theoretically about that the battle belongs to God. But we don't find ourselves on a battlefield like that, do we? Maybe I wish this wasn't like this, but I can tell you stories about men who chose to boldly proclaim the word of Christ even when they were being threatened not to. But even that falls a little short because we have never found ourselves in that place. We might. We might, but we haven't yet. But there's not a doubt in my mind that a story of a mom being willing to pray for her son to come to salvation touches every one of us because we all know people that we love, that we wish were following Christ, that we have been fighting for. Some of us have seen victories in those stories and some of us sitting here this morning haven't. I know lots of your stories. I don't know all of your stories. And it suddenly sounds completely different to tell you that God can look at us and say, this great horde that's arrayed against you, you should not be in fear or dismay because the battle belongs to me, not to you. And I can rah-rah you until you understand that Jehoshaphat could certainly trust God that the battle belongs to him. 
and Peter and James and John and the early disciples, they could certainly trust God that the battle belongs to them. But that won't make a bit of a difference until we understand. That means you and I can say, my battles belong to God too. It is those same prayers offered up by the saints to say, I will not move, God, until you change the situation. Hudson, by the way, him and his mom were claiming the same verse. It became pretty much his life verse, he says. He clung to John 14, 13 in all kinds of situations where Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Hudson took Jesus literally. He said, if you said it, that's what I'm going to operate my life by. I ask in your name, Jesus, and I'm assuming, I'm expecting, I'm not assuming, I'm expecting that when I ask in my name for a need that is in front of me, that you're going to answer. And he saw God do incredible things. More stories than I could ever tell you about Hudson Taylor. Pick up his biography. Incredible, incredible man of faith. But again, we kept moving the time frame forward, and now we come to this morning. You know the year. I can just put that up there just to let you see that. But we have our own horde arrayed against us, don't we? We have an enemy of our souls. We have one who's walking around like a lion seeking who he can kill, maim, and destroy. One who wants to steal life. And by all measures of things, he's doing a pretty good job. Church, the battle is not ours. It's the Lord's. We have those of us snared up in all kinds of sinful actions that we can't get past. That just keep popping up again and again, and we hate it. We don't want to, keep, we don't want to talk about it to people. We, we, we wish it wouldn't be true, so we pretend like it's not true. We tell ourselves, surely now, when I've come to my senses and I've hated what's going on, surely now I'm going to just do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to not allow that to happen again. But the battle doesn't belong to us. The battle is the Lord's. Unless he vanquishes the enemy, the enemy will not be vanquished. We prayed this morning for a dear sister who's on her way to Mayo. Thoroughly unable to find answers for what's happening. Isn't it obvious? God knows exactly what's going on. So the battle is God's to fight, not ours. Right? He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how to change it. Pray God that he will. We have other things that are happening. We have relational issues. We have marriages struggling. We have parent-child relationships that are off the rails. We have family dynamics that are going all over the place. We have struggles in the workplace. We have all kinds of pressures. There's not really anything else I can say to you. 
Are you willing to come and lay that battle down and say, God, it's yours to fight? And pray the kinds of prayers and praise the kinds of ways that they praise and give thanks the kind of ways they give thanks and ask for God's powerful filling of the Holy Spirit inside of you the way that they asked for and expect that God will move the way they, asked, they expected God to move. Unless you're willing to do that, this is a theoretical exercise that will make a difference in your life.